Hey, this episode is brought to you in part by Slate Real Estate Advisors and Signature Doors and Windows. Now, on to the show. You know, I'm there sleeping in the desert and I'm going to studio classes. I feel like everyone else is so far ahead of where I am kind of walking into that and I'm doing dishes after dinner, you know, in there and I didn't even have a proper sleeping bag. It was so cold in the desert at nights. My first couple nights were so cold. I had to like run down to the store and buy a sleeping bag so I could just like be comfortable at night. I mean, it was a pretty like, pretty steep transition for sure. Hi. Hello. 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 Hello and welcome to Architecting. Hi, welcome to Architecting. I'm Rebecca Wagner here with the host, Adam Wagner. Hey, Adam, who's on the podcast today? Hey, we have... Christian Butler on the podcast today. Do you nice. know what do you know about this guy? Uh, not a whole lot. Some really nice houses. Mm-hmm. That's about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he he was sort of a mysterious guy that I'd been wanting to get to know for a while, and uh, yeah, I was able to connect. Let's see. So this was like three Fridays ago. Okay. What were we doing? Oh, I don't know. It's been a whirlwind. Architecture high school camps. Yeah, architecture high school camp. It was the final day. Oh, right. I had scheduled this interview to be recorded at the University of Colorado a few hours before the final crit. Against my recommendation, (laughs) mind you. Your strong recommendation, yeah. Uh, And the students were getting their projects ready to go, and then we got an alert that there's some threat on the campus and the whole campus was shut down. Mm-hmm. So we were trying to figure out, we had reviewers coming in, trying to figure out what, what was going on with them, what was going on with the students. And then I was trying to figure out about this interview and what to do. And uh, it all worked out. But Yeah, all the students were safe and got sent home. Right. And it was a very anticlimactic ending to the camp. Mm-hmm. But... Yeah, but uh, so I was sort of panicking, trying to figure out where to record this. And Christian said, just come over to my house. And it turned into this like day of chaos. And then I step off the street into his house that he designed and developed. And it was just like this Zen garden of (laughs) tranquility and just such a beautiful space, well-considered space. bright and quiet and just well designed and we he just took me down into his basement and we went to his optimized designed listening room and we just listened to music and then had this long interview and uh yeah was able to kind of really get to know him uh better and um just really enjoyed this conversation diving in a guy who, who really came to architecture pretty late in his career and went to uh, a different school, went to Taliesin and had a very different experience there and then has just kind of plotted his own course for his career and really just worked, worked for himself and um, developed his own, own projects and, and uh, making beautiful stuff. Worked for himself the whole time. Yeah, he, he's had a few mentors, but I don't think he's he's really worked for any firms. Wow. Yeah. Um, but 
yeah has has plotted his own has plotted his own course and uh kind of like us graduated in the pan uh not the pandemic the recession <laughs> of of 09 and had to pivot 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 but but I, I almost feel like he would have done this anyway uh whenever he graduated he just he he has a vision it seems like and he he doesn't seem to be scared of those things most of us are scared of <laughs> <laughs> but uh so he shares some of the answers here nice cool i'm looking forward to it yeah i was too and uh he did not disappoint awesome thanks enjoy but hey, today's episode is sponsored by Slate Real Estate Advisors, and we have Slate's co-founder, Jorgen Jensen, here to tell us more about their company. Thanks, Adam. Slate is a residential uh, real estate brokerage uh, created for design-conscious buyers, sellers, and developers. Uh, we do have an office in Lower Highlands. We've been here for six years. We're currently located at the corner of 17th and Central Street. At Slate, our passion has always been to connect people to exceptional living spaces. We are driven by design and the opportunity we have to enhance the quality of our built environment, local communities, and the lives of our clients. And I really love how engaged Slate is with our Colorado design community. They, they've published a design directory on their website, highlighting uh, many local architects, good architects, many of whom I've had on this show or who will be on this show. They've launched an art space in their office called Nook, it's Denver's smallest art gallery as a platform for engaging the local art community and hosting events. And they published the Slate Edition, a digital newsletter, where they highlight some of the people, spaces, and places that they find most inspiring, both locally and globally. Uh, we're, we're glad to have them as a partner here on the show and look forward to uh, more of what they do. Check them out at slatereacom Hey, we're happy to be sponsored by Modern in Denver Magazine. For over a decade, they've been crafting fantastically curated content on Colorado designers and projects, spreading the gospel of good design within our region. And I love how the goal of Modern in Denver aligns with the goal of this podcast, to better build up and connect the community of Colorado designers. So go buy a copy of the magazine at your local bookstand, subscribe to their weekly email list, and follow them on Instagram. Check it out. Well, thanks for having me over to your house. Yeah, my pleasure. Uh, it just took a uh, some kind of security threat on CU's campus and uh, allowed me to invite you over to where I wanted to be in the first place in this uh, beautiful house you've developed. Yeah, well, it's gl glad to have you here. You know, and I this is a place I hang out a lot, and I always kind of prefer to have people over here. And it's just nice to share space too, right? That's kind of yeah. kind of the point. No, so we're sitting we're sitting in this living room. And uh, it's right off Arapahoe, and but there's this big light well right in front of us, and the what the the wall is what like six feet away or something. Yeah, but right It's creating this such a nice quality of light in this space, and then up in the bedroom as well. Um, we were talking before when we were walking about how how difficult that can be for developers to maybe pay for that or something uh, and not see the value of it until you, you see it in person. But I lived in Mexico City for a little bit and 
we stayed in this Airbnb for six months mm-hmm. and it was just like this, like a courtyard, almost the size. And, and that was your only window for the entire uh, unit. It was like yeah. a little studio, but I just have such good fond memories of these courtyards like this. Yeah. I've always been really inspired by the courtyards in Mexico city um, and in Japan as well, but mm. particularly in Mexico city, I've had more adult experiences of those spaces. Um, and in general, I just want, all my spaces as much as they can to be connected to gardens and connected to the outdoors. Uh, but in an urban environment like this, I also really pr- you know, privilege my privacy. You know, yeah. I don't like being on display feeling like I'm in a fishbowl in a neighborhood either. Um, yeah. So these like light well courtyards are such a great solution, but you're right. I mean, they're, they're challenging to build and they're expensive and it's not an easy sell. Um, I had one project with a developer um, acquaintance of mine that we did a bunch of work together on and one house we had this kind of little small kind of courtyard very very mini version of it you know and i kind of kept trying to push the idea a little further and that's about as far as we were able to get um until i built this one you know one of the benefits of developing and building it myself is you gotta kind of make those prioritizations that don't always make sense if you're only looking at it from a financial end yeah yeah it seems like you have to you, yeah you have to sort of force that in a way, right? To, to prove it or, and if you can't, yeah, then you have to do it yourself. But yeah, I mean, I think that's true so often in architecture in right. general, right? I mean, that's like, you have an idea, but if it's difficult to translate that visceral experience, the kind of quality that you're going to get post production. Um, and when you get a large, you know, expense tag to it and it's not coming out of your pocketbook, right? Like you can, you can understand why a client could be real hesitant yeah. to, to want to, you know, take that risk. Um, but you know, all the more reason why I've really enjoyed doing my own development work is because I get to kind of put my money where my mouth is, yeah. so put my money behind my ideas and for better, for worse, right. I get to live with the consequences. Right. Yeah. We, uh, at my office right now, uh, just started it like a year ago and we started, you know, we had maybe one project we had, we had more time. I had, we had all these theoretical ideas about houses and things. <laughs> You know, and we started, we started one up and, uh, and it's kind of the idea of like reinterpreting a a ranch style home and like thinking about enclosing, enclosing the private and making it more private and opening the open more open. And then Mm -hmm. like, uh, and it's just this horizontal slab that has all these courtyards that punch through sort of the same idea. And, uh, and it was like, okay, yeah, if we had, if we could do whatever, this is what it'd be, you know, and we just need to show that. And so we started it and then we got more projects and there's no time. And like, finally we're almost done with it after like a year and it's getting rendered right now. And it's, it's like beautiful, but, uh, yeah, it'd be interesting to see, you know, we can show it, but if we're not developing it, you know, it, it still takes someone to take that hook to try to do it, you know, or that's the nature of the game for sure. Right. You know, cause it takes a, all these different parties to get together to manifest an idea to create a space. Um, and if any one of them aren't having it, right, then, then it doesn't move forward. Yeah. Yeah. So what, so uh, have you thought about that, that weird question I asked of who are you in two sentences? Cause is that, yeah. Is that some of it? You know, yeah, it's an abstract question for mm-hmm. sure to yeah. be able to boil it down, but, I think at its basics, I am 
a curious explorer that finds a lot of joy in creating beauty and manifesting ideas and sharing them with others. Nice. Uh, you, I, I've been thinking of you as like this, uh, like this sort of like mysterious architecture wizard that I've like been hearing so much about, but I, I never see. And, and yeah, uh, you uh, don't hear from, um, but everybody's like, tell me about you. And I'm like, if, if I can get that guy to talk to me on the podcast, I'll be doing pretty well. It's like, so I'm pretty happy here, but uh, so that, that idea. Um, so yeah, how, how did that, how did, have you always been that way? That, that sort of curious uh, creator, you know, where'd that come from? Yeah, I think it's been developing over time, uh, for sure. I've definitely been curious for a long time, um, kind of tapping into more of the the creative side, like the design side and manifesting and really prioritizing creativity in my own life came really more in adulthood than in childhood. But in hindsight, you know, it feels like there was this progression, right? Like I couldn't be here without have gone going through all these other steps that kind of got me to arrive. Um, but I really didn't start even considering architecture until I was about, you know, 28, 29, mm, or really? 27, right in there. Um, before that, I was in construction, uh, which I'd been doing since I was 16. And hmm. my undergrad was in uh, international business huh. with minors in economics and Spanish. Um, you know, so it was a fairly circuitous route um, to get to this point. But now that I'm here, it feels like, you know, so comfortable and so obvious, right? Like this is clearly what I was intended to, to do. This is where all, all the vectors lead to, led yeah. to. Yeah. And that's what I was going to say. I, I was saying mysterious, uh, because I think you're the person I know the least about coming into this. Like almost everybody else has like a LinkedIn or something yeah. that I can go and kind of mine some information before, but I, I know like nothing about you, like yeah, school or where you're from or anything. So, sure. so yeah, where'd you, where'd you grow up? I grew up bouncing around a lot. So I was born in Virginia, but moved pretty quickly thereafter to California. And mm. then not long after that, out to Asia. Um, my dad was a naval intelligence officer and mm. uh, became the naval attache also while we were out there. And so we bounced around Asia for quite a bit of my youth, uh, primarily in Japan and Singapore. Really? Um, but we also got to spend time in, in other countries as well. Um, wound up moving back to the U.S. a little bit before high school, uh, back to Virginia. Um, and that's where I was until I graduated high school. And then I've been in North Carolina, moved to Costa Rica for a <laughs> while, Arizona, Wisconsin, Colorado twice, Mexico. Uh, yeah, so a lot of nomadic travels. And so what, what does that do to you when, when your youth is like that, when your childhood's like that, and, you're, and, you're, and you get to college? Or, or you graduate high school, right? And and what's next? So what did that push you into? You know, where was your mind at then? You know, at that, at that time, like going into college and even leaving college, I was really interested in international development work, uh, yeah. like economic development, poverty yeah. allevi alleviation, and, uh, and just really continuing to live broadly and cosmopolitan and, and overseas. And I, was intending to join the Peace Corps right out of college. That's, that was kind of the main plan. And I wanted to go to a country who spoke Spanish. It was a passion of mine. And I'd mm. already lived in Costa Rica for a while during school. And um, the problem came that 
because of the separation, the kind of required separation between the intelligence work and peacetime uh, work, uh, any place where my dad had been involved with, I couldn't work in the Peace Corps. They had that huh. kind of level of separation because some of the debacles that happened back when they actually used the Peace Corps to like uh, play CIA people in countries and huh. you know, made it dangerous for everybody. And so they took that much more serious. And so I couldn't work in pretty much most of Latin America, which I was most interested mm. in, and uh, really narrowed down my options on Peace Corps to the point where it no longer kind of seemed like the opportunity I was looking for. Oh, what a weird thing. Yeah. 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 It, I wouldn't have thought of that. I wouldn't have I mean, either until I like ran good. into it, you know, yeah. but, uh, but it makes sense, you know, it makes sense to, to have that, that separation. And, um, so I wound up joining the AmeriCorps program and did a couple of years working for Habitat for Humanity, but staying here in the U.S. instead of traveling abroad. Hmm. Um, and that kind of kept me in the construction scene. I was literally a site supervisor for them, helping to teach volunteers how to build affordable housing and physically building the houses with them. Um, that was in Charlotte, North Carolina, then also here in Denver. It's originally huh. what brought me to Denver. And so that was before you did your international business degree? Or? That was right after. R right after. Right okay. after, yeah. So you got your Spanish degree, business degree. Yeah. And and you and you were thinking, yeah, I want to go that way. You went through four years of college. Yeah. It all made st sense still. You were still on the same track. Seemingly, right? Seemingly, yeah. yeah. Uh, and, and so, yeah, you're doing AmeriCorps and then what happens there where, where's your mind at like well i mean i was i was inspired to find a way to give back and to do community service you know and that was really a, a lot of what was pulling me into the peace corps as an idea and it's what brought me to americorps ultimately um and it was a real learning experience uh for sure you know i mean i've been in construction since i was 16 you know starting on the bottom of the totem pole you know like just cutting houses that have been burned and put out with fire extinguishers and mm. just rotten and nasty, just really trash work, you know, and eventually learning some skills and some carpentry and, you know, kind of working my way up that, that ladder a little bit. And for Peace Corps or for the AmeriCorps program, working with Habitat to be able to work on the house from beginning to end, you know, from the foundation up, we would do a lot of it ourselves and be involved in most aspects. And also to have to educate others on how to do that, to teach people how to how to build houses, mm -hmm. but also getting a big education on, you know, affordability and sustainability and energy performance and a lot of other aspects, of, particularly here in, in the Metro Denver area that they take real seriously. Um, mm -hmm. It was, yeah, I think broadened my understanding, but it also started giving me my first kind of introduction to architecture. Uh, there was a group of volunteer architects that would meet on occasion and kind of design and draw up the houses they were going to build. And I got a little curious about what that process was like. Mm. I would sit on some of the meetings. And and in my mind, the the idea was, well, I get the construction side. Um, my kind of creative outputs were hobbies on the side, whether it's photography or drawing or just kind of mm. these little things I do there. And it's like, maybe architecture, maybe this is a way to like kind of combine the creativity with the construction experience. And so I started attending a few of the meetings and kind of gleaning some information from there. And then that's really what started inspiring me to look for you know grad school programs that I could do in architecture. I mean, granted, I had literally no idea what architecture was at that point. Like the level of naivety that I had and like unawareness was pretty astounding, you know, and that's probably what also like gave me the motivation to even go for it and try to do it. Yeah. You know, it's it's weird how opaque architecture can be from the outside. Right. And to you just just, you know, I've been teaching these two high school courses these last two weeks 
And uh, yeah, you know, it's something that seems so obvious to us, uh, but then introducing to these students who still have a good amount of background in it and, and just seeing them kind of realize something, right, about the profession of how it works or whatever uh, that, that feels obvious. But it seems like that on a sort of societal level too, uh, you right like yeah because you were you were close to architecture right and you were you were building off the drawings but it's right. still a hard thing to grasp yeah yeah and i think i mean i think it's also kind of a critique on mm-hmm. our society in general right that we have such a separation between the like creative end of making spaces for humans that are safe and comfortable and beautiful and efficient um you know, because like people live in houses for the most part all the time and yeah. spend all their dimes in buildings, you know, but they hardly ever see that as a as a service or as a creative pursuit or even as a career that, you know, you could really pay attention to. Um, so it does seem opaque, you know, and there's kind of a lack of education around that and myself included. I mean, I, yeah. had, I had so much learning to do when I got started and a lot of my like classmates in school were way more versed in design and architecture and history. I mean, I was just like having to, I think, almost work twice as hard most of the time just to try to play catch up. <laughs> but then you're like, hey, guys, let's go frame up a wall. Let's see, uh, let's see where we get. Yeah, yeah. I did have a few perks on that side for sure. So you, you, you somehow you decided architecture. Yeah. And then that next hard step of like deciding what school, what, what was that like? Where'd you go? So I, I went to Taliesin, mm. the Frank Lloyd Wright School of Architecture. Yeah. And I, you know, I just started searching any program essentially in the country and even some out of the country that I could have an unrelated undergrad for and what kind of prereqs that I do over the kind of logistics side of getting in. Uh, and then the more I looked, I mean, I just found myself much more intrigued by some of the kind of more smaller and more alternative programs. Mm. Going to a larger university with a traditional program just didn't really quite seem like of lifestyle fit. Um, and when I stumbled into Taliesin and saw how alternative that was, hmm. and, you know, you would be living at Franklin Wright's Estates, you know, in Wisconsin and Arizona, moving back and forth. And um, they had this kind of portfolio program where you would have to meet different criteria that you got reviewed against and know how far you've progressed through the school hmm. rather than meeting a certain number of credit hours or certain grade points. And all of it just seemed really intriguing. Uh, so it's, it was actually the only program I applied to. Um, hmm. I didn't apply to any others and went out there and visited him and had some conversations and was fortunate enough to get get a chance to go there and, and work it out afterwards. Because I feel like I didn't have a whole lot of strength, you know, in my portfolio or in my like uh, experience beforehand. Yeah, but I feel like, I mean, just, just in doing this podcast, that's pretty unique, you know? Well, I guess, especially with undergrad, most people kind of fall into a school, mm-hmm. uh, grad school, you know, it, it's a little more chosen, but you, you like really researched it and figured out that one place that was right for you. Right. And, uh, yeah, yeah. And that's, that's how it felt. Yeah. And so when you got there, was it what you expected it would be like architecture in general or no, you know, I'm not sure what my expectations were. You know, I almost wish I had written them down cause I think it mm. would be amusing to go back and read them at this point. Um, but no, it wasn't what I expected. Um, 
like for one, it was kind of this rolling admission there. It wasn't like all these people starting. It was a really small program. I think when I arrived, there was 12 of us in the program, undergrad and grad combined. In the entire program? In the entire program. Wow. Yeah. Maybe, maybe it was up to 16 at that point, if that, but very small. Hmm. And also you're, in this case, you're living there full time, you know, you're living on the campus. So it's, it's a community, you know, you've even got some responsibilities, like some chores to help in the kitchen or help around the, the facilities, you know, once or twice a week, um, in addition to your studio work and your classes. And then, you know, also I was sleeping out in the desert, you know, we have like 500 acres and there's this long tradition there. Um, you know, when they first arrived on that land uh, with Frank Lloyd Wright back in like 38, 39, looking to build there, the first thing they did was kind of build some basic stone bases and put up these canvas shepherd's tents. And they lived in these tents while they then constructed the rest of Taliesin West, huh. you know, building by building. Um, and so I've kind of the tradition grew such that some of the more senior students can design their own little shelter space. Uh, typically less than 100 square feet, usually pretty rustic, um, no power, no water, you know, kind of like a shelter literally out in the mm -hmm. desert. So, you know, I'm there sleeping in the desert and I'm going to studio classes. I feel like everyone else is so far ahead of where I am kind of walking into that and I'm doing dishes after dinner, you know, in there and I didn't even have a proper sleeping bag. It was so cold in the desert at night. My first couple of nights were so cold. I had to like run down to the store and buy a sleeping bag so I could just like be comfortable at night. I mean, it was a pretty like pretty huh. steep transition for sure. Um, so I don't know what I expected, but I don't think I quite had that vision yeah. either. Um, yeah. So what? Who? Who were? I mean, how many? So if there's only what sixteen students, yeah. twelve students, how, how, what was the faculty like there? Who who what who was teaching? And what was the kind of structure of the classes and things? Yeah, um, you know, I'm not always like the best at remembering all the details of that stuff. A lot of times, the past for me just kind of becomes this like blurred thing that uh, feels like a dream. Yeah, um, but there was a handful of faculty, uh, and we have studio work. Um, we'd have an engineer that taught structures, you know, we'd have someone that worked on software on the drafting side. Um, but then there's also some kind of like general humanities type courses to writing. Um, I remember that one, for example. And then there's this kind of project they would call the box project. And that would be your season long, um, whether it's the winter season when we're in Arizona, the summer season when we're up in Wisconsin. And you would create the idea for this project and you'd have um, have a faculty mentor on there that would need to approve it. And you'd work all, all season long on that project. I guess it would be kind of like a studio project for a lot of places. And then at the end of that season, you'd all present the work. And that's where you could have a little more self guidedness, but also kind of direct your education towards these kind of criteria that you're being judged against if you weren't getting some of those areas taken care of in, mm. in the general coursework. And then what you'd also have to do each season is create this portfolio. So, you know, we had this, these criteria, I forget, I think there was like 32 of them wow. and each one had like a level from one to three. And depending on whether you're getting your undergrad or your master's, you know, you had to achieve a certain level in each one of those categories. And each one of those kind of has a definition about what it means to achieve that level. So at the end of the season, you take all the work you did in your in your classes, all the things you just learned on your independent studies, you take your box project and you have to distill that into this portfolio that you would then hand over. And you'd have to rate yourself on each of those categories where you think you got. <laughs> and you'd hand it over to this kind of faculty review staff and board, you know, and they would all re read it and review it. And they would kind of determine where you did get to. <laughs> and then you'd have a discussion over that and you kind of a resolution. And then that's where you 
would kind of start your next season on that basis. Okay, you've achieved a one here and a three here and a zero here. And, Interesting. Um, you know, you try to go for this category, but we don't feel like it met the standards. You still got to keep working on it. You know, uh -huh. it's a, a very kind of um, like a learn by doing kind of prove your point afterwards rather than kind of taking a test, right? You'd have to like distill your experiences and then translate it towards that criteria for them. Yeah. What was the box project? So, so the, the project box project, project, I mean, it's essentially just a studio project, you know, and the further along your, your studies, the more complex it could get, but it could be, you know, a, a design of a house could be one, for example, you know, or maybe oh, okay. it's like a community center that focuses on these specific problems. Um, the reason it got named the box project is because there was this tradition when Frank Lloyd Wright was still alive that uh, they would literally design a box for Frank Lloyd Wright for his birthday, I believe it was, if I'm not mistaken. And it'd be this kind of intricate object that a couple of students would take on and really prioritize it. And then other people would make things and, and put it in the box for uh. Frank Lloyd Wright. And they'd hand that over to him as this kind of gift. And he would open up and analyze the box and make comments and look at the drawings or works that were inside the box and uh. make critiques and comments as well on that, you know? And so this is kind of, that's like the linguistic lineage that translated eventually into essentially, which is like our studio long self-guided project. Yeah. Interesting. I mean, so the, I mean, did you just feel his presence there? I mean, was it, you yeah, know, was it for sure? Yeah. yeah. I mean, you can't miss it. I mean, right. one just being in those buildings and they weren't just any building, right? These are his homes, you know, the places where he lived and worked and the studios. And yeah. so that sense of history was, was all over it, but also because, I mean, when I got there, there were still, a handful of individuals that that got accepted by uh, Frank Lloyd Wright into this, the program and worked under him for a few years before he passed away. And they were still there living and working in this kind of community space. So there was this really direct sense of lineage. And often when those individuals would talk about Mr. Wright, as they would always call him, I mean, there's this, you saw the charisma and you saw the kind of presence that he must have carried because it, it very much still hung in the air. Um, and plus, when we were there, it, it wasn't just a sense that you were living in a house museum, which I think, you know, today actually much more is a house museum. Mm -hmm. But at the time, it really was this continuation, this kind of fellowship that he had created uh, back in the 30s never really ended. And so when I was there, it was like you were still this kind of nonstop legacy of continuous inhabitation and existence within those spaces. Um, so you could very much feel the, the, the concept of the thing and his presence and his design guideship. Um, but also just living, you know, 24 seven in the spaces themselves, you know, I think also gets you really connected to that presence. Yeah. Did you feel like the, the, the pedagogy and the architectural theory had evolved as well, or did it, did it feel sort of like holding on to kind of exactly what he had done? Uh, both, you know, yeah. I think it depends on the examples. I, I think there's probably more examples of it feeling kind of attached to replicating some of the original ideas mm -hmm. in perpetuity than there are examples of growth and modification of the concepts of organic architecture. Um, but also, I think some of the difficulty of that too is, I mean, Wright was so so abundant in his writings, you know, like, and you can almost read anything he's written. He's almost written like three other versions of that same idea, but with very different conclusions or different points of perspective. You know, it's like such a broad library of thoughts um, that I actually think is pretty hard to like distill it down to, you know, buildings look like this. You right. know? And, yeah. and then we're talking, all right, well, which part of his life are we even pulling that out of? Right. right? Exactly. It's such a broad scope of 
of work. Um, but there's, you know, I experienced both. I definitely experienced those that felt like if the building didn't look like an organic building from the early 50s, then it's not very uh, Reichian and it's not organic, quote unquote. Right. Uh, and then there's others that, that, you know, agreed with some of the stuff that Wright even himself wrote was that organic architecture is is a living idea and that it's going to be up to the next generations to refine and define and evolve it. And I think we got to see some some examples of that as well. Yeah, yeah. There seems like a lot of uh, yeah possibilities within his architecture of yeah of of evolving form, but still based on those ideas. Exactly. And, and it's so easy. Like I I grew up in Wichita or around Wichita, Kansas, mm -hmm. and there's a few right buildings there, sure. and they're still brand new. You know, buildings in the middle of downtown that are that are like. They just took that house and scaled it up three times and <laughs> yeah. put a deep overhangs on low hip roofs yeah. and like, you know, and it's, uh, yeah, but I just happened just teaching this high school course was, was talking about kind of, uh, uh, different urban theories, you know, and mm -hmm. was lecturing on broad, Brodiger, uh, Brodiger, Brodiger city. Yeah. Brodiger city. Right. And it just looking at those drawings are so amazing with the kind of like weird helicopter car <laughs> yeah, totally. things. And, you know, it's, <laughs> it's so, uh, yeah, just forward thinking in different ways, you know? Uh, yeah. I mean, it, he was such a futurist in so many of those ways, right. right. There's like kind of like almost bug looking helicopter yeah, flying exactly. cars and like his projection of what these spaces could be. Um, no, I think you're right. I mean, so much of, uh, the derivative work has been attached to some of these like formal moves right. of right. And, and again, like they're either pulling from like the Prairie school, right. Or they're pulling from, from like, like 1915. Or yeah, something. exactly. Yeah. They're pulling from these different periods and they're really associating that with, you know, some kind of idea of organic or just Reichian or even just Midwestern. Even, yeah, you know, right. like there's a lot of identity wrapped around that as well. Um, yeah. And not, I don't know. I've barely ever seen, I can't really think of any examples I'd find good, you know, right? <laughs> yeah, right. That yeah. feels like they're really like doing a service to design and architecture and humans, right? Yeah, it's just, yeah. it's more, uh, feels nostalgic, I guess, for lack of a better word. Right. So you had this pretty atypical architectural education. You're coming out sort of older, right? Mm -hmm. uh, what, what happens when you graduate? What, what's next? Well, I, I graduated at the end of 2008, beginning of 2009. Mm -hmm. So like, you know, amazing timing as far as not being able to get a job in architecture. It's <laughs> the same time I graduated. Yeah. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, Undergrad. Brutal. Um, <laughs> but I did, you know, what I, I learned during um, school, the idea of architect as developer. Mm -hmm. And that really caught my attention. And, and by my third year in the program, I was really kind of focusing in on like, this is what I want to do. This makes sense to me, both from a business standpoint, but also just as a like, creative control standpoint. Um, so I went to a conference out in DC. I think originally there was two of these conferences. One was in DC and I flew out there and attended this conference to kind of learn about these ideas and some of the methodologies. And so then I really shifted my focus into that towards the end of school. So I knew that that's what I wanted to do mm. when I got out of school was to look for an opportunity to develop real estate and act as both a developer and then in my case, the GC, and, but also the, the designer. Um, and at the same time, 
I had a lot of flexibility on where I could live or where I'd wanted to live. And I had spent a few years in Denver, as I had mentioned, prior to going to grad school. And I remember liking it. It was affordable, uh, at least at that time. And it didn't have kind of all the nostalgia of an East Coast city where if I built a modern house in a neighborhood of old houses, right, they're going to kind of treat you like you're stepping on their culture or trying to invade something. It just felt like it had the right conditions and it wasn't like going to Seattle or Portland or San Francisco or New York where there's just, you know, the, the barrier to entry is so high and the caliber of designers out there was also equally as high. So Denver just kind of felt like a why not kind of place, you know, yeah. it seemed to have the right fit of opportunity and affordability. So uh, my partner and I at the time, Rebecca, we moved out here Um you know, broke three years full-time in school. I mean, no money, nothing but debts and had to pretty much like shuffle around the few hundred dollars I had into many accounts to make it look like I had more money just to like get an apartment, you know, to like prove it. And um, fortunately, Rebecca had skills as a barista and she could find herself a job pretty quick and make a little income. And I, I applied to so many jobs. I mean, mm. had to have been at least 20 jobs just looking for something, uh, none of which were in architecture. Oh, really? Yeah, I mean, there was there was no openings in architecture that right, I knew yeah. of or could find. Huh. One was like an engineering company that did some surveying work that was maybe at best tangentially related. And then the rest was, you know, hospitality or bartending. I even, I think I reached out about walking dogs. <sighs> um, I think I got one no thank you letter and that was about it. Like not even a response from any of them. Um, You're like, but have you heard of Frank Lloyd Wright? Like, yeah. the, I, come on, I can do it. Oh uh, yeah. I made a box for him. Let's yeah. come on. Yeah, Hire no, me to walk your dog. No one yeah. quite seemed to care at, at <laughs> January, 2009. Yeah. Oh man. Um, yeah, yeah, it was, it was tough. And, and we moved into this apartment we needed some furniture and as a graduation gift, I'd actually received like a, I think a $200 gift certificate to Home Depot. Mm. And so we needed to build some furniture. I wanted, so I designed up some furniture, uh, when bought some birch plywood and kind of designed up some objects where I could make a few pieces. Uh, but working on them was in, not very conducive in our apartment. You yeah, know? I so I wound up reaching out to a friend and acquaintance, a man who used to volunteer at Habitat for Humanity when I worked there. And I knew he had a wood shop and he was kind of a hobbyist. And so I reached out to ask him if I could use time in his, in his, uh, wood shop and, he was kind enough to agree, uh, Jim Tate, and he was reluctant from what I learned. He doesn't really let people in his quick shop. He was <laughs> hesitant, but he would meet me there and he would work on his project and I would work on my project. And um, I wanted to build in the kind of three pieces, like a bookshelf, um, a coffee table, and what was it? Some other piece. Oh yeah, and like a little bar cabinet uh, that I made with that the two hundred bucks in material. Can I use all the scraps as efficiently as I could to not waste anything? Yeah, you know, to get nice. all of these built. And um, and at the end of the project, he and I found that we really kind of enjoyed working together and spending time. And he then hired me for probably the next six or eight months to help him remodel his house. And mm. we would build stuff out of solid oak in his shop, and then go back into his house and install it. And uh, real, real generous person, you know, who came through at a time when I needed, needed something to do and needed some income to work. Um, and fortunately kind of in that period, a project that I had worked on in grad school that had gotten pretty well published and won some nice awards, um, got a little bit of traction and 
a client wound up calling me um, from Oregon and they were interested in having a kind of a version of that project on their huh. property. Um, and that kind of started my, my first commission gig, you know, my wow. first opportunity to do a project for a client. Because that's that the, that mod the mod house yeah the, the mod fab mod yeah, fab, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. and so was that sort of like a thesis project or something at Taliesin uh, or what, how yeah did that come kind about? of yeah. it it was a larger project that I wound up taking kind of lead on uh, but we had a team of us uh, Nick Mancusi a good friend of mine who also graduated from the program was kind of the right hand man on there and then uh, Michael P Johnson was the uh, mentor on the project mm. an architect down in Arizona. And that's really where he and I grew to become close as well. Um, I learned a lot from him and, and he really, you know, took charge over that project, dialing it in and making it architecture, you know, making mm. it beautiful and learning how to detail. Um, so it doesn't really work quite like a thesis. I had a separate kind of capstone project, so to speak, but ultimately, yeah, I mean, that's how it functioned for me. It was, yeah. was a thesis project, really learn how to design it. And then we built that ourselves, you know, out there with our tool bags on all the time in the heat and um, hand carrying materials, you know, several mm. hundred feet down a path to get there because we couldn't bring any heavy machinery into the site because it's all wow. kind of delicate desert area there on Kelly yeah. and West on that property. Um, Yes, yeah, so that project, you know, didn't get finished by the time I was graduating. So I wound up actually staying a handful, maybe four months after graduation, just to keep working on the project mm. and making sure it got finished and built. Just hanging out in your tent. Yeah, no, since and, yeah. at that point, uh, Rebecca came to stay with me there. And so they actually put us up in a little apartment. Oh, yeah, nice. so it was, uh, we were really living the high life at that point <laughs> out of the desert. So then you, you got your first, your first, Kind of commission project, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then I always find that the second one is maybe the most interesting. You know, you, you, you like start it and then like, it, then it's what's next. Yeah. So what, what was next after that, that Oregon one? You know, that's, I'm actually trying to remember kind of how the sequence went. There was a couple little projects here and there, kind of like helping at a cafe design some little railing enclosures to expand their outdoor space. Just little, little odds and ends that were mostly kind of through the network. Um, I think the next kind of real design project was um, Groundswell, a cannabis dispensary mm. that I did. And that was largely uh, through relationship as well. Um, I knew the original partners of it. And at the time, this was before the laws really shifted. They didn't have a brick and mortar store. They were doing private events and home delivery and um I, I was also growing cannabis at the time as a caregiver just to mm. help fill in the income, but also just out of curiosity and yeah. passion and exploration. And um, when the laws changed and they needed a little storefront and a brick and mortar, and they're like, oh, you do architecture, right? You do design work. Can you help us with this? And um, I was like, yeah, that sounds great. And so, you know, I designed out the interiors for this kind of really boutique uh, experience and then physically built them out as well and oh, got nice. it all kind of it's constructed. Like that, that, that kind of curved yeah, wood surface. Kind of a curved yeah. eel wood that kind of like vortexes through the two spaces. Right. Um, so I built that store and then again, not having, you know, too much to do, I wound up um, kind of leveraging that for some equity in, mm. in their business and then also helped to run the store for about the first year that it was open. Um, cool. So I was still doing design work on my own and on the side, but I was spending a lot of time kind of on the retail end, helping to like keep the store operating and manage people there. Mm. Um, yeah, just wearing all the hats, you know, <laughs> just kind of 
keeping keeping everything moving and making enough money to survive and keeping myself entertained. Yeah. And then, uh, then when does the, when does the development come in and how does it come in? So during that whole time I was looking for land, you know, I knew that's what I wanted to do. And so I was really kind of studying the areas in Denver and looking, shopping essentially. And I mean, one perk of that time, right. Is that there was a lot of land available Mm. and it was really affordable. I mean, of course, relatively speaking, um, like here in Rhino in Curtis Park, where I would start buying land. I mean, you know, I had the option of like eight or nine lots that were just available with like no one bidding on them. You know, like <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. No, you yeah, can't, right? It's, it's it seems, seems so ridiculous. It wasn't that it wasn't that long ago, and um, so I had identified a double lot over on Lawrence, where I eventually wound up building that triplex, and I was like, okay, this is it. You know, it felt like it just it felt right for the for the opportunity there. It's near downtown, near this light rail that was going in by all these warehouses. Um, so I brought Rebecca over to check it out and I was like, okay, like this is the spot. Yeah, I, I feel it. And then I think she just about cried when she looked at it. I mean, it was, I mean, there's just, you know, discarded mattresses and trash everywhere. And there's these big junkyard dog next door just barking like it wants to rip our heads off, you know, and it's just, it was not, was not pretty uh, for sure. Uh, you know, fortunately she was willing to overlook some of that and trust. Um, but yeah, but I had to borrow the money. I mean, I really didn't have the money. And at the time, uh, that land, I think it was listed for 140,000, if I'm not mistaken for the double lot, for the, for the double lot. Yeah. 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 Um, but I had looked up and the, the guys who owned it were, uh, two brothers, they're builders and they were looking to develop it. So they kind mm. of drew up this one-story duplex uh, building, really traditional, pretty boring building. And they were trying to pre-sell it, you know, for 400 grand a half or whatever it was. And no one bit on that. And so they looked at buying the, selling the land. And I think by the time they got down to 140, 150, they just pulled it off the market. But I had looked up that they had bought it at auction for $85,000 on a bank repossession. Mm. Um, and the previous owners had bought it for 260,000, I think, with a house on it scraped it, lost it during the bubble burst oh, wow. to the bank. And then the bank auctioned at 85 grand. So I came in and offered them 85,000 for it. And I was like, Hey, you want to just get out of this deal? <laughs> uh, they didn't actually take too kindly to that <laughs> um, and said no. And then I kind of did the math and figured out how much their holding costs were and property taxes and what they might actually have into it and came up with a number of a hundred grand and came back and offered them a hundred grand and they took it. Hmm. Uh, of course, then I had to go find the money because <laughs> yeah. I didn't have it. Um, so I put together the pro formas, you know, I was really studying what the economic model looked like and could justify borrowing money at, you know, five, 10% interest would be fine. So I started kind of shopping that around and eventually it was some family that was willing to, uh, step in and loan the money to purchase the land. Yeah. And then we were able to use the land, um, as equity towards the bank loans for construction and kind mm. of able to start that process rolling, um, and then, of course, you know, I put all the design as equity in there, the development uh, process as equity. And then I was on there building it, you know, with my own really? sweat and blood. Yeah. yeah. I mean, we built a lot of that ourselves by hand to um, just keep costs down, right? Trying to make it as affordable as we could. Um, and also, of course, use our skills to create as much equity as we could. Right. And did all that, did most of that knowledge come from your undergrad degree? Like the putting together performance and stuff like that? Or... 
I mean, I think it gave me a basis for understanding the language and definitely kind of a maybe a business mindset. Uh, but a lot of that I really had to learn kind of on my own. Um, once I started looking at this idea of architect as mm. developer with Jonathan Siegel, he was yeah. the architect there out of San Diego that really you know pioneered that path, one of, one of a couple. Mm-hmm. And you know, I was literally just studying his proformas that I got at that conference and breaking them down and rebuilding them in spreadsheets and just trying to figure out how they worked and mm. reading development handbooks and just, you know, gobbling up as much information as I could. Um, but it was, I didn't really have anyone teaching me per se, right? right. So it was very much a kind of learning as I went. Yeah. Talking about like sort of opaque uh, industries, you know, I, uh, I have two other partners and our goal is to do development as well. Yeah. And one of the partners is like a, a New York developer, like very knowledgeable. Nice. And the, the best, the, the other, the two of us, yeah, we all like did Jonathan Seagal's course together yeah. and did that. And it's like, I'm, I'm, I'm grabbing at straws, you know, like, I, I, okay, I think I get this, you know, but it's still like, I feel like there's a little bit of this threshold and kind of what I'm told is like, you just gotta go, you just gotta develop something. Yeah. And then it's like, you learn so much through that first process that it's like, oh, maybe this isn't that, not, not that hard, but you, you just have to hustle and you have to figure it out and research how much those guys bought that land for and uh, right yeah i mean you want to avoid the like the stupid mistakes if you can right yeah. like in as much as possible right learn enough to kind of avoid some of the like obvious follies but no i think you're right i mean doing it you're going to learn you're going to learn pretty quickly what works and what doesn't um and even for me it's like every project is um a refinement you know it's always based on the last one, uh, both, of course, from a design sense, you know, like what worked and what didn't, but also on the construction, also on the financial end, yeah, you know, how to, how to make everything work together for, for a more eloquent solution. I mean, I think that for me, that's really what design is, right, about problem solving. And as clearly as we can define the problem, then the more eloquent we can create the solution for. So, you know, I think aesthetics and beauty are, are huge to me, but I think you know, probably as much about the economic model and about the buildability of it and how all of those things can work together to create a solution, which in this case, for me, right, it's, it's a house that I can afford to develop that creates some value for me financially and creates, you know, a beautiful, durable space for others to enjoy as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I can see that in your work where it's, it does really feel like this exercise and refinement of where you're, you know, we always say this to students, but you know, of trying to strip everything down until you can't strip it down any further. Yeah. And, and the, the, the real, you know, primary forms and, and, and sort of almost extreme, like solid and void conditions you're working with, you know, it, it, it has this, yeah, nice, nice kind of primal, like Lucan kind of, you know, experiences. Uh, and it's interesting thinking about that in terms of a sort of, uh performa as well where it, it's all kind of working together from your point of view of a con- of of, const- of con- thinking about construction and and the economic model of it and from an architecture that's less superfluous in a way uh, yeah i think they all definitely you know support each other and make sense right why i wind up doing what i what i do and I mean, I, I am kind of a minimalist at heart and aesthetically, I you know find myself drawn towards that direction. 
Um, but that idea of shaking off all the unnecessary, I mean, I definitely do that, but where we draw the line at necessary, unnecessary, that's where mm -hmm. it gets mm -hmm. a little more nuanced. Um, and you know, the further my work goes, the less interested I am in achieving minimalism as some kind of purity of concept mm -hmm. where it's a, always reductionist, mm -hmm. you know, for me, it's reductionist until it's not adding more value to the experience, mm -hmm. you know? And so I'm kind of looking at more through a humanistic lens, a kind of an experiential lens. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, in a lot of ways, I think my work is kind of moving more towards uh, connection with the landscape and with the earth and more earthen materials mm -hmm. uh, rather than kind of like high minimalism in this kind of modernist tradition where mm -hmm. it's about, you know, as simple colored palettes and textures and, um, so it's a balance there, but you're right. Like it, I, I still, even when I'm thinking purely on an aesthetic experience of space, it's hard for me to divorce the idea of like, well, how do you build it? You know, or like, <laughs> or what's that going to cost? You know? And so I always have those elements kind of playing against each other, but at certain periods of the process, then I'll prioritize one over the others. Right. And really make it a study of, okay, like, okay, we better understand what this is going to do financially, you know, or. Mm -hmm. There's periods of time where I'm like, okay, and we got to, now we're going to be building this. Let's make sure we've thought this thing through or other periods of time. I'm really kind of staying on the kind of aesthetic and experiential nature of space. And ideally they all kind of harmonize, you know, and by acting as a developer, I also get to make choices where I can prioritize certain experiences over the economics mm -hmm. where if I can still make the economics work, it's not always my goal to maximize profits. You know, I'll, I like to maximize the experience while making the profit sustainable and workable, you know, so I can kind of rejudge how much any of those criteria get to have the loudest voice at any point. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you're thinking less in terms of, yeah, I need to maximize this square footage for the the per square foot sale price, uh, and so I can't do this courtyard in front because it's wasting space. But it's about the overall experience of the the value of the experience, and less the value of sort of right. the rote way of thinking of more area or something. But and at the same time, I do want to make that a conscious choice rather than a whoops kind of choice. Yeah, you know? yeah. So I try to like understand the cause and effect of that choice and like know what that's going to do and how that limits my valuations at the bank or going to give me or whatever it is. And then make, make the choice that I want to make, you know, but with as much clarity as I can give it. I mean, of course there's always unknowns, right? So, but you know, with each project, you get a little better at kind of understanding the, the cause and effect of those choices. Yeah. So let's talk about, I like that idea that you're, of how your work is evolving mm -hmm. and, 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 uh, how'd you phrase it? Sort of, uh, getting closer to kind of nature or, um, so what, what's an example of that, of, of some of your recent work that's, that's sort of evolving in that way? Um, well, I, you know, I've taken a bit of a break. And so the most recent work is all kind of in process right mm -hmm. now, whether it's in design and or permitting, uh, currently. And I think there'll be a fairly large step uh, between some of the projects that were done, you know, three, four years ago uh, compared to that. Um, but it, progressively the projects 
still look too tied to the landscape. I mean, that's always what I've been doing. And most of my projects have been also really urban. Um, some of the projects that I have coming up have a lot more space around them. Hmm. And so I'll also be able to play with different relationships and how a building gets sited and how it connects to the land. Um, doing a development with two partners for a spec home up in Aspen uh, that I'm you know, solely in charge of the design and uh, managing the construction end of that, but I'm on the overall development team as well. And on that project, we're using rammed earth that hmm. we're sourcing from from quarries, you know, near Aspen. Oh, wow. um, big, beautiful courtyard landscapes. Every room's got a private courtyard essentially wow. to it. Big wide oak flooring that we're um, putting in there. You should look at using the Denison uh, dug fir, not oak. Um, but like, you know, 16 inch wide by 40 foot big planks of Whoa. wood and really beautiful earth kind of grounded materials, huh. but still very much in like a minimal perspective of not putting, you know, anything that's not really enhancing that experience and allowing the simplicity of the daylight to be seen, you know, giving space for good art to have breathing room to be recognized and having things like the fireplace, you know, really anchor the room. Um, and again, just kind of creating these blurred boundaries where you're always getting views back into the landscape, whether it's the public spaces that are there to be shared and you can see people hanging out or these more intimate kind of gardens, you know, reserved for the bedrooms and some of the other more reflective areas. So, yeah, I think, you know, who, I guess like JC Buck was telling me, I, I first heard about you through him and then meeting up with Hunter Leggett and hearing about you. And, and yeah, it's interesting that this path you've taken where it's, uh, at least in the way you're explaining it, it is, it's almost like this minimal path where you've, you've taken advantage of such of every opportunity so well, you know, of like coming out and like needing to build furniture and then like getting a job based on that or like doing that house in school and getting a job based on that and like doing the dispensary and like, like doing that and then just going right into your development. And it's such a, uh, different architectural path, right. Of normally I graduate, I need to get a job. Okay. It's a recession. Okay. I'll wait a little bit, but then I'll get a job in an architecture firm. Cause I don't know what I'm doing. And you know, how, how, cause that was kind of my path too. Like I started a firm in 2009 and then I was always kind of like, man, I, there's a lot I don't know. I, I need to I need to work for somebody to figure it out or whatever, you know. But did you did you struggle with that at all, or like like oh I haven't worked at a firm, or it's it's a sort of just this path that you see that you keep following. Well, I, I definitely had struggles in not knowing what I was doing and having to like <laughs> work it out in process. And a lot of times I felt like I was having to reinvent the wheel, right? Instead mm. of going to work at a firm and getting a lot of that kind of direct education that can happen that way. Right. Um, that being said, you know, I've had a continued relationship with my mentor, Michael Johnson down in Arizona, and he's always been really generous with his time and knowledge and understandings. And I've had people I can ask questions on. And um, I'm also pretty good just studier. I like to learn and I'm curious and I have kind of an appetite to go out there and educate myself when I feel like, there's things I don't know. Um, that being said, the traditional path never uh, looked enticing to me. You know, it just didn't feel like a lifestyle that I wanted to live. And so I knew I was going to kind of be going my own entrepreneurial way. And 
And, you know, I think but to the broader point is I look at it like my biggest design project is my life. Hmm. You know, like I'm trying to create a life that I love uh, doing things that I enjoy doing and have some meaning and some connection and purpose to it. And I see work as one of those kind of aspects that support my life. You know, clearly there's the financial ends, um, you know, being broke is no fun. <laughs> that's for sure. Uh, yeah. That being said, I don't need all the money either. You right. know, like there's yeah. enough to sustain huh. a beautiful life that is sufficient for me. Um, I enjoy creative outputs. You know, I find having projects to look forward to and to work towards and be excited about is a really energizing and fulfilling aspect. Um, but I also like to hang out with my friends and cook a beautiful meal. And I like to go travel and explore, go out dancing. And, and I really don't kind of prioritize any of those that much over the others. Mm. I kind of see them all as working together. And so when I imagine the life I want to live, I also was looking for how to use my creativity and how to use these skills in design to work towards those goals the most yeah and a traditional job in a firm where i'm having to put in too many hours and be underpaid so often and wait for this opportunity to kind of like climb through the ranks and eventually get my licensure and eventually split off and do my things just felt kind of like a grueling path to get there um so looking at like the design development model where i could create buildings that I really believe in, that I'm excited about, that I can manifest with my my hands. And then also, you know, create a economic model that could sustain better, you know, instead of getting a fee for service or a paycheck. Yeah. I create passive income that just kind of keeps on paying over time and helps to like mitigate the shifts in the economy. And I could slowly just kind of add and build to that portfolio specifically with the goal of not having to make income uh, generation, the like primary deciding factor on whether or not I'm going to work or what kind of projects I'm going to work at. So, you know, as much as I could divorce those, I thought it would give me more creative freedom and more creative prowess. Um, so that was kind of always that intention from the beginning. Um, and it's still, you know, an evolution, right? Like it's still, you kind of take a few steps forward and reevaluate mm. and readjust and realign. Um, but I know I'll be living kind of a, a traditional path because it it suits how I find pleasure. <laughs> yeah, man, you're you're living the dream. I mean, <laughs> from an architectural standpoint, you know that that design uh, develop model is, you know, it's sweeping everybody right now, right? Like yeah. it's it seems to make sense. That next step of figuring out how to do it, you know, it seems like the big step. Um, but yeah, a lot of people are doing it and doing it well, and. Um, and it's great to have, you know, those kind of like pioneers that are like sharing that information and that education. Um, I also have feel like I would like anyone who really ever asked, I'd give them my performance. Mm. You know, I don't feel like any of it is proprietary or anything like that. Right. It's not mm. like a thing where it's like I need to hold my knowledge or my information tightly so that others can't compete. You know, I actually I say the more the merrier. Right. I think the more that we see good design in this city, the more it gets competitive and uh, collaborative and like growth oriented model where we're kind of encouraging each other to step up and do something more interesting and more beautiful and more elegant of a solution. I think the better for all of us, you know, so. Yeah, exactly. You just see most of the time the people that get, are controlling what gets built is the, the developers or the contractors who are, yeah, just throwing up whatever they can or feel like or, and 
Well, it makes sense. Yeah. You know, you know, having worked in the development side, I mean, it's really difficult to get an interesting, unique building built. I mean, it's like, you know, you're working against the codes a lot of times. You're working against the expectations of the bank. You're working against the expectations of clients. I mean, it's like, unless you are willing to literally just like push that boulder up that hill and yeah. keep pushing and keep pushing against the resistance, it's not going to happen. And the reason we see so many mediocre buildings getting built over and over again is because it's the path of least resistance. You know, mm -hmm. it's like the the GCs have built 10 like it before. They can guarantee the pricing pretty strong. You know, the banks have financed ones like that before. So they're happy to do it again. And it's easy to get through the code because it's just kind of following the, the kind of minimum standards right through the line. And um, we've, as a society, have created these rules and that's the elegant solution right now, unfortunately, right? Mm -hmm. or, and that's why we just keep seeing them over and over and over again. So it's hard to be the designer who's trying to stand up and say, no, we need to do this better, right? Yeah. And they're all saying, but well, this works, right. you know? Um, so like, it's almost like we also have to look at the system as a whole, why we keep allowing like mediocre buildings to be the obvious solution, you know, mm -hmm. like how we can shape it to require more and expect more. Well, it's probably also some of that that opaqueness of architecture that we talked about, right? Of the sort of knowledge base of the normal consumer has never seen a house like this, right? Doesn't right. doesn't know what they could expect, or you know, kind of gets sort of like the supply side versus demand side, right? Like if people yeah. aren't asking for it, then they're not going to give it to them. But if they don't know that they could, ask if they don't for know it, it right? exists, right? Yeah. yeah. I mean, so how many how many of the how many developments have you done in? Denver's. So you had your first triplex. Yes, did the triplex. Um, and then I did these two houses on Arapahoe. So I developed both the houses, one of which I sold, uh, and then I kept the others, you know, um, our primary house. And then the next project was over on High Street. Um, I partnered uh, with a guy, Connor Howley, and his father. They He had been building for me on several of my mm. projects. And so the last project there on High Street, and we also uh, designed and built the same house over on Gaylord a couple blocks away mm. over in Cole. That one was a development of mine, but also largely an opportunity to kind of get some friends into houses. I mean, as we know, Denver is just getting more and more expensive and the barrier to entry is getting quite high, especially for first time uh, homeowners. Yeah. So with this one, I, I allowed uh, them to put some money in on the land uh, that I also put money in on. Um, and then I contributed the design as equity and Connor GC'd the projects and we worked on building them together and he could create a lot of equity there. And with his family support, was able to get one of the houses that he could keep hmm. for he and his wife and they're now uh, young children. And then I kept one of the houses and carriage houses and rented that out. And then the third one over on Gaylord was my friend Don Novak, who's my business partner in the cannabis businesses. Mm -hmm. uh, we started the dispensary together and uh, it, they're still uh, doing work in that space. And, you know, I'm largely hands off in there, but still have an interest in the business. And, you know, he's dedicated so much of his time into growing the cannabis side and getting real estate for that property and hadn't really gotten in a place for himself to live. So <laughs> we were finally able to get get him one as well. So uh, those are really my three three projects um, here in town. And then the canvas houses, you did those too, right? I or did those the, just on the design side. Design side, yeah. yeah. So uh, Nathan Beal with St. Bernard Properties was a developer and he and I have done a handful of projects together. And 
Um, so I designed those uh, actually in partnership with my mentor, Michael Johnson. Mm. Uh, he came up and kind of I offered this opportunity if he wanted to come to visit in Denver and just any excuse really just to have him come up and learn from him and see how he would tackle some of these designs and issues. And so he and uh, our friend Nick Mancusi, they flew up and we worked on those designs together. But uh, from the development side, that was all uh, Nathan Beal. Mm. So uh, he he built those and sold those. And that was really his deal. So you talk about like this idea of, of having to push the boulder up the hill, right? Mm-hmm. Of trying to get better architecture. So are you... Do you plan on continuing this kind of this business model of developing these, you know, two, three homes uh, or or not? You know, is it can you not do that in Denver anymore? Well, I think it's really difficult in Denver right now, uh, you know, single family or even up to like five units. Um, it's really expensive. Materials are difficult. Labor's up. You know, the costs have all risen even more quickly than the prices have risen, unfortunately, you know, and I mean, prices have risen so fast where it makes it pretty inaccessible for a lot of people, but the cost of even doing them is in some cases growing even faster. So the margins are getting real tight. I mean, I love the idea of continuing to do development work um, and contributing to the kind of urban scape of Denver as well. You know, I'm going to take some time and wait to see what the economy is doing and how things shake out. Um, before I find some other opportunities. But there might also be opportunity to scale it up a little bit and do something a little larger. So I'm developing this house in Aspen, but it's a single family house, but it's a pretty significant house and uh, a lot of money. It'll be uh, you know, quite high price when it does sell, um, but it's a very different market up there too. Right. Different kinds of construction, different kinds of margins as well. So you know, I'll be pushing that one forward over the next several years. Um, but I'm also really interested in looking overseas. I've been looking at property in other countries um, and looking for some opportunity to like develop something more towards hospitality or multi-unit rentals uh, for vacation um, and just continuing to look for areas where I feel like there's a unique opportunity where the kind of price value equations work better, but largely they're places that I just want to be, you know, and again, kind of back to this lifestyle thing, if I can build a project down in Mexico where I get to go and spend a lot of time and down there and have a little place for myself and places for my friends. And it also works economically like that starts getting a lot more exciting than kind of doing the same thing, you know, here in the same neighborhood. Yeah. Um, so it's all kind of in exploration and process. Right. I see, I see that as a, as a difficult sort of dichotomy in a way where saying, okay, I want, I want our fabric to be better. Right. And I have this model that works and I did two of them. Right. Mm-hmm. And saying, okay, well, how, how many times am I comfortable doing that? Right. Versus, yeah, how do I spend my time? And, and actually I want to be down in Mexico or I want to be doing, you know, on a, on a, in a van or whatever, right. you know, uh, of, how, how you can kind of hold both of those in a way or to balance them. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, you can do both at the same time, you know, logistically it wouldn't be impossible to like run projects in both locations, but you know, right now it just either it works or it doesn't, you know, and right now, you know, some of the kind of basic models are really difficult to make work. Uh, just the, the equation has shifted and demand is shifting and all of these kind of components make it a lot less known right now than it, than it felt three, four, five, six years ago in the same place. 
granted, you know, I am doing, I do have one project I'm doing for a client in a more traditional kind of like mm. fee for service uh, design model. And I'm doing that for good friends of mine and we're building, designing them a really beautiful home down on South Sloan's Lake. Um, so th there's still opportunities to also like be involved in Denver and contribute to the conversation around housing and design. Um, but it may not be my own, you know, development per se uh, for a little while until again we find the right opportunity and makes sense. Yeah, you know, because each of these projects when I develop them, you know, it's like I'm literally signing, you know, everything on the line there, right? It's <laughs> right. It's, it's, a, it's an all or nothing game, you know. Like, yeah, if that project goes down, then they then own everything else I did before then, you know. It's <sighs> like I'm having to leverage the value of those properties to get access to the money to develop the next one, and you know, so. You want to be really thoughtful and strategic really sure. about that. And you yeah. want to be pretty darn confident that it's that it's going to fly. And right now, it's hard to feel that way. So you did you did take what like a year or six months or something? We're driving around. Yeah, it was yeah. On the road for about a year. Wow. Um, was it right during COVID or yeah during COVID? Let's see. Left a year ago. Thanksgiving is that it? No. Yeah, a year ago Thanksgiving. So we left, hit the road around November, and. Um, it was Rebecca and I, we rented out our house for the year, uh, able to make a little income with that. And, and actually it was my intention to just not have any work uh, for mm. a period of time there. But this project in Aspen kind of <laughs> started a conversation shortly before I was leaving and great fit, beautiful opportunity, good partners. And so it was too good to not do. And I was excited to be able to even take that on the road with me. So that felt great. Um, yeah, I spent several months kind of bouncing around uh, through Colorado and out to California and Arizona, New Mexico, and uh, and then wound up going down into Mexico via Baja and did the whole Baja coast over a series of months. Wow. And, um, posted up at Southern Baja, kind of between Todos Santos and the East Cape, doing some surfing down there and took the ferry across to the mainland and explored over to San Miguel de Allende and through Tequila and down back to the coast to Zihuataneja and then traveled up the coast, um, kind of eventually making my way back up towards Colorado, um, posted up in Aspen for a little while to touch base on the project and get out of the rainy season in Mexico, yeah, right. which, you know, was difficult in a van with two adults and two dogs uh, <laughs> when it's raining every day. It gets logistically a little difficult. Yeah. Um, so escaped up to the mountains in Aspen for a little bit and then wound up having to uh, kind of pivot unexpectedly. I was actually planning on going back to Mexico and continuing the travels. And Rebecca, she got into grad school, which has been a long time coming, like a big passion for mm. her. And the intent was probably to start in a year or you know sometime later. But uh, the program at Naropa was like, oh, we've got one spot available. You could start in two weeks. Oh, and wow. She jumped on it excitedly. And so then we had to like really quickly figure out how to logistically make that work you know uh, so we wound up staying down in boulder for a few months and got her in school and then transitioned back down into denver um so it was a very much on the fly process and then yeah. you know i got to denver and uh as soon as i kind of reappeared here some people kind of started approaching me like oh hey you're back i've got this idea for this project are you interested uh and i started saying yes to things and the next thing i know i'm like i'm I'm working again, you know, like the, I'm having to like hire people and I'm like, oh, wait a minute. It's just got like all of a sudden. I'm supposed to be in Mexico. Yeah. What's going on? <laughs> yeah. yeah. It, it felt that way. It's taken me a little bit to kind of like uh, readjust and reacclimatize. Uh, but now I'm, you know, I'm excited. I've got great projects. Uh, it feels good to be back in the city. It's great to be connected with my you know community of friends and all the support that I feel here. And 
Um, so I'm working it out, but yeah, it's, it's a little bit of a slow roll when you're kind of used to sleeping on a beach surfing and getting back into the workflow. Yeah. That's interesting. I was going to ask how it, how it affected you when you came back, but, uh, then you, you got, you get hit. Like there's just people waiting at your door with the modern Denver, uh, magazine <laughs> with you on the cover saying, yeah, we've been waiting. Come back. Yeah. I'm going to have it. Yeah. Not, uh, not, not too, too much, but enough, <laughs> enough to like fill my schedule pretty quick for sure. Right. Um, and so what does that what does that community look like for you here i mean you've been here yeah like what you know 13 years something like that and you know seen it change a lot i assume and yeah yeah this is by far the longest i've ever lived anywhere i mean like i was saying earlier i grew up bouncing around and typically we would move every four years kind of at the latest and i for a long time i always had that four-year itch you know after about four mm -hmm. years in a place i was ready to go and explore somewhere new and you know, I feel like I landed in Denver and blinked, you know, 12 years passed by, you know, I just got real busy on these projects and, you know, these kind of things take a while, right, as you know. Um, and it's been in the last couple of years, I think I've really realized some of the value of staying put. You know, I've got really beautiful friends, people that have known me for a long time, people that I know, um, you know, you get reputation through your work, you get access um, you develop relationships professionally, you know, all of these things that really make me feel connected to Denver and also having kind of grown my practice and my career here, um, makes me feel dedicated to it in a way too, right? Whether it's like, it's given me so much that there's a lot that I want to be able to give back to it. Yeah. Um, and it's, that's all pretty like new understandings for me. You know, it's not things I grew up with, um, but they're things I'm really learning to appreciate. So even as I kind of continue to explore the ideas of living internationally and splitting my time between places, you know, I really see Denver as like home base, you know, a place where I'm going to invest in and spend time and have my community. And then, you know, also probably look to spend some time in other places that fulfill some of the sides of me that Denver doesn't. Yeah. So do you have a sense of sort of that end goal? Does it, does it wrap back around to that, that whatever 18 year old that's, uh, was trying to get into Peace Corps or like, <laughs> you know, what, uh, do you, do you know where the, the path kind of leads in the little further future? Yeah. I mean, I have ideas, uh, you know, a lot, a lot of which are kind of being re-envisioned, um, actively now. I mean, for me, it's as much about, I mean, it's the journey really, right? Is the goal to have a beautiful journey more than kind of arriving to some destination mm -hmm. down the line. Um, but I want to spend time in beautiful places. I want to share it with people that I love. I want to enjoy the land that it is. I want to eat great food. I want to live in really beautiful spaces. I want to have fun gatherings. And I'm looking for opportunities to do that wherever I can. Um, and I find myself drawn to some other like geographical locations. You know, I'd love to spend some time on the beach and uh, there's other countries that I find really inspiring as well from some cultural aspects, like in Spain, for example, or even in Mexico. And I could see myself living and working in those places, but the goal is going to be similarly where I want to have creative output, right? I want to want to like shape spaces and I want to share them with others and um, just kind of make, you know, as much use of the time that I have while I have it. And then 
die just like the rest of us. You know? yeah. So just kind of live that journey. Live that journey. Yeah. Well, yeah. I, you know, I, I just appreciate you being here. I guess <laughs> like just this, uh, uh, a just just creating very uh, meaningful, inspiring work, and and being a, a different sort of model for the profession. Right. It's 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 pretty easy to get directed into to the certain narrow flow of the profession mm-hmm. and of thinking of this is how you have to do it, you know, and I see that in a lot of students, uh, but of just showing that there's this other way you can, can do architecture and do a firm and, and, and create good work and, and, uh, and balance life. Right. It's so easy to get unbalanced, but yeah, uh, I think you'd say that that's kind uh, yeah. for sure. You know, and like I said, it's an it's a active process, right? It's like you take the feedback and you kind of grow from it and and kind of decide what to do at that point. Yeah. Well, you know, thanks thanks again for on the fly having me over to this nice space, and yeah, uh, happy to. it's been a good Friday afternoon. So yeah, thank- you're, wel- you're welcome anytime. Come back and hang out. <laughs> oh, we'll do. Yeah. You know. Uh, yeah. So thanks thanks for being on. My pleasure. Thanks. You can visit architecting.com, that's architect-ing.com, to see images from this week's guest. And please rate and review the show wherever you listen to podcasts. Have a great week and keep connecting. This is Sarah Hubbard, host of You and Me Kid, a podcast about starting and raising a family on your own. We just launched season two, and I'm speaking with single moms, those still considering, and experts in relevant fields to give you a real sense of what the day-to-day experience of solo parenting looks and feels like. Plus, this season, I've partnered with California Cryobank, the number one sperm bank in the U.S. So wherever you are in the process, this podcast provides some support, humor, and helpful information. Listen to You and Me Kid wherever you get your podcasts.